Hello, I am here with Dr. Ariana Kuhn. Welcome to the VMNH cast. Thanks for having me today, Ben. Yeah. So this is a very exciting episode of the VMNH cast. Uh, Ariana is our newest, and in fact, our, uh, our newest curator and our very first curator of herpetology. So I guess to uh, get started, what is a herpetologist? So herpetology is uh, an interesting uh, field of study because it actually includes two groups of organisms that are really different uh, when we look at them up close, but have been grouped together historically. So the prefix herpy means to creep. And uh, as you might imagine, because of the animals I study, lizards, snakes, um, frogs, salamanders, they sort of sometimes, some species, creep along. And so that's where the origins of the word is. And that's kind of, that's what I study. When, uh, when you were a little kid growing up, it was, was there a moment when you realized, you know, this is the field I want to go in? Were you always catching bullfrogs and stuff like that? I certainly had my fair share of backyard, pond, frog, and tadpole activities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think this is partially required. <laughs> but really for me, it was the things that didn't work out that kind of led me to science and research as a career. So I loved animals. I still love animals. I like the outdoors. And early on, I had an idea, you know, maybe SeaWorld, maybe some Shamu action. Um, I'm not a great swimmer, so that was kind of off, off the charts. And then we had an idea about maybe veterinary school. You know, I do love animals, but interacting with them in that setting um, and not in nature is really not what I'm interested in. So these two things sort of not working out are what led me to realize that research scientists is a job that could involve me interacting with organisms in their natural habitats all the time. Can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of what was your, your educational journey? Where did you start out? Because I know that you know, the groups of herps that you started out with aren't necessarily where you've ended up. So. That's absolutely true. So I like to think that I got really lucky mm -hmm. in that I went to college with this idea that I did want research science but I didn't even know of herpetology as this career at that point. I knew a little about microbiology, so I had this idea that I was gonna go and do research and be a microbiologist. And I went and visited some of these labs and it just didn't click. And I walked into this lab, the, the poster on the outside of the door, I remember it said, the gecko king is here. <laughs> and I walked inside, it was actually a molecular laboratory, they were doing DNA work in there. Um, and that's where I met my, my master's and undergraduate advisor, Dr. Aaron Bauer, who happened to be right there, in, right outside of Philly in Pennsylvania, the world expert on geckos. Wow. So I just got so lucky and I got pulled into some really cool projects where we were describing these new species of gecko from sub-Saharan Africa and I was really just hooked. Yeah, for those who might not be familiar, you know, geckos are one of the coolest animals. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what a gecko is? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, you know, geckos to this day, although I'm not uh, working with them as much as I used to be, are very near and dear to my heart because I think they're one of the most charming species of lizard. So they are a type of lizard. Um, they can be found, you know, they're almost panmictic. They're found all over the globe. And these would be the types of lizards that if you've traveled to some places that are maybe a little bit warmer than here in Virginia, you might see them on the walls of your buildings. So they have this remarkable ability to, um, their toe pads, if we zoomed in on them with a microscope, had these microscopic little hairs that interact with the, um, at the molecular level with bonds on the wall and they can sort of scale walls and, and other surfaces. 
So they're also, you know, they can be incredibly fast. They're very cute. They don't have eyelids. Um, and so they also have this ability to lose their tail when startled. So um, if you've ever interacted with a lizard that had some of these properties, you may have been handling a gecko. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are a few places where um, in Virginia, where you can find Mediterranean geckos. Oh, that, yes, the yeah. yeah, the Mediterranean house geckos. And I know we've got a few in the collection here as well. So, yes, you could find those here. That's a species that's very common kind of in the more southern portions of the states. Uh, they're really cool because the females can give birth to young without mating. So they can have these, they're essentially clones of the, of the mother. So they can uh, parthenogenically give birth, and that allows them to colonize places really easily because you just need one gravid female to, to arrive, have her uh, babies, you know, lay her eggs and the eggs hatch, and then, you know, there you go, you have geckos in a new place. So you mentioned uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Now, you've been to Africa, is that right? I have, yes. So that was the very first place I started doing field work. As I mentioned, I was in that gecko lab and they sort of came up to me one day and were, asked me if I was ever interested in doing the field portion of the work that we do, which is where we get the tissues we use for the DNA extractions in our research. And I was like, yes, absolutely, yes, definitely. And so as soon as an opportunity opened up, I was able to go to the Western Cape and sample some of the species that I was working on and see them in their natural environments. And uh, later on, uh, my projects led me to northern Namibia, southwest Angola, which is where one of the fastest species of geckos in the world lives. And so this was a group that I worked on for quite some time, I'm still working on. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, much later on, I started working in Madagascar, which is not quite mainland Africa, but mm -hmm. it's sort of adjacent. And there is a whole bunch of really cool geckos on this island. Yeah. And you know, Madagascar is one of those places where I mean, ev everything you see there is just cool and weird from, from what I've seen, you know, various nature documentaries. It was just like entering another world. It was certainly like entering another world. And I think one of the coolest things about Madagascar is depending where you land when you get there, it can show you a really different side of Madagascar than sometimes these documentaries um, sort of broadcast, which is there's these eastern, humid, um, high elevation and lowland rainforests. This is where you see that high species diversity and a lot of their most charismatic fauna live in these regions. But there's also these high plateaus in the center of the island. There's a number of enormous and really intense mountains. There's these limestone formations that have very specialized species that can, you know, for example, the geckos have enlarged toe pads so that they can scale these insane uh, limestone walls. Um, and a bunch of other really cool habitats. So that's one of the things I really love about Madagascar is it's, you know, when we refer to it as an additional continent, it really does capture some of these properties. So after, uh, you know, some of the, the gecko studies in Africa, where, where did your educational career go next? So the gecko stuff, you know, while I was at Villanova University, which is just outside of Philadelphia, that, you know, I was working on geckos. I was actually also working on skinks um, in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So this is another species of lizard that may have been encountered by people living in Virginia. If you've seen a lizard that's on one of the walls outside your house on a sunny day that has a bright blue tail, you definitely saw a skink. And so I was working on skinks from another part of the world. And later on, I was interested in continuing my education in this field of study. And I was trying at a bunch of different labs across the US and actually even places like Australia, thinking, you know, what am I really interested in? 
And Dr. Frank Burbrink at the American Museum of Natural History currently had a grant to study the snake radiation on Madagascar. And every time I visited a museum during that period of time, I would walk through the collections and I would see geckos and be excited. But when I saw the snakes in the jars, that's you know when I got the most excited. And so I really, really love these organisms for so many different reasons. And when I saw this opportunity kind of open up, I jumped on it. And that led me to do this work on, on what we've coined the name gem snakes, which is this radiation that's endemic to Madagascar. Um, yeah, tell me about gem snakes. That's something I'm not familiar with. Yeah, so maybe just because, you know, we're circulating this name, but it's maybe not all the way out there yet. Essentially, Madagascar is unique because the endemism, meaning species that are found nowhere else on Earth, on this particular island is incredibly high. So if you think about losing a, a small portion of forest in Madagascar, the species diversity that you'll lose in the same proportional amount of space being lost in the United States is not comparable. You know, we're going to lose so many more species there. And, um, you know, these gem snakes... A single colonization event essentially resulted in, over many, many years of evolution, uh, upwards of 100 species of snake that are only found on Madagascar. And uh, 100 and counting, really, because there's at least 30 new species that we've identified and are in the process of describing there. That is, it's, it's always remarkable. And, you know, for those who aren't so much in the sciences, uh, yeah, if you're an entomologist, it's one thing to discover a whole bunch of new species, but finding a bunch of new species of a vertebrate is something that you, you just don't see quite as often. That's really an achievement. It's really exciting, and uh, this idea of cryptic species, meaning species that we're, you know, we're tripping over them all the time, they're right there in our backyards, but we haven't been able to investigate them on a deeper level to recognize that they're actually a unique species because of this cryptic, you know, maybe coloration, maybe they look like another species, is really pervasive. So it's definitely the case in the tropics, you know, we're always finding things in holes and trees that, you know, there's just one of them in this kind of area. But it, there's also potential for this type of stuff in, you know, in Virginia. There's been a handful of new species of salamanders described from very close to where we are right now. So I'm, I'm excited that there's a lot more potential for new species in the region. Come back to salamanders shortly, <laughs> I suppose. I, I know that uh, through the University of uh, Lethbridge, you were mm -hmm. studying salamanders in Alberta. So was that sort of immediately after the gem snakes, or was there were there other steps in between? So it was pretty immediately after. I mean, I've always been involved, you know, in finding salamanders or helping salamanders cross the roads during their migrations in the region that I was in around New York City and in New Jersey. But uh, yeah, my focus had largely been elsewhere outside the United States. But I did want to move my research program to encompass uh, some applied aspects of conservation biology. Now, in Madagascar, we're barely scratching the surface to get to that level. We, we don't even know what species are there. We don't even know what these species might need or how many of them there are. An advantage of working in North America is that we kind of have a better handle on what these species needs are for conservation. And that allows us to then do more applied action with our research. And so this was an opportunity to do so in the Canadian Rockies. And, you know, I certainly wasn't complaining about that as a, as a field site either. Now, I know we talked, uh, it's been many months, but uh, had talked a little bit about your work in Alberta. And 
I know, I, I remember that you were studying salamanders, but there were only two species that were found in the area. Is that right? Yeah, so there's the long-toed salamander, which is tiny with a beautiful golden stripe across its back. And then we've got the tiger salamander, which has a much larger distribution. We're kind of getting into the northern edge of both of their ranges, right, in southwest Alberta. And this is going to be a much larger salamander with kind of a mottled pattern. So what, uh, what was the nature of your research with those? So we were doing a whole bunch of interesting things with the long-toed salamanders. One was that, yes, there are just these two species in Alberta, but what we already know from previous work is that there's more species of long-toed salamander. And so, and the break between these two is right between two national parks. And so some of our work is gonna be to understand how many species are in this complex, which extends all the way down to kind of Southern California. Um, but also to do some reintroductions. So in a lot of these high elevation ponds in the region, fish were introduced back in the 20s. They ate up all the salamander eggs, so they're not native. The salamanders that are extirpated, meaning they're not extinct, but they're gone from that region. And there's an interest from the parks to put them back in, in these ecosystems. However, you can't just necessarily take something, introduce it, and have it do well. So my specialty is using DNA to understand the history of the organism, to understand the health of the population, and to make informed conservation decisions about maybe what the best bet is for going back. The conservation element, that is one of the reasons that I was very excited when, when I first heard we were going to be getting, uh, you know, creating this herpetology position. Because generally, you know, it's my understanding that uh, reptiles and amphibians are hit by man-made climate change harder than uh, most other groups. Uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the sort of challenges that these species are facing right now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's another, it's one of the reasons I'm interested in amphibians as well, because there's such a need for uh, more research, more data from these, these organisms that we actually know very little about compared to other vertebrates. And that's partially because they're really secretive, but also partially because they're so species rich. So there's always differences among species that we're barely beginning to uncover. And right now, they're one of the most threatened vertebrate groups on the planet for a number of reasons. One of the biggest ones is frogs and salamanders are threatened by these uh, fungal pathogens that can infect their skin and cause massive die-offs. And one thing that we're recognizing is that not all species are responding the same. Some populations within the same species are faring really well um, when they interact with these pathogens and others are dying off completely. And this is spreading around the globe, but what we do know is in North America, it's not, um, most regions, including Virginia, have not been hit in the same way. But that allows us this amazing opportunity to prevent that from ever happening. So we're kind of in the stage where we can do so much to protect the species that are right here in Appalachia. And when I say species in Appalachia, you know, we have more salamanders here than anywhere else. So it's a really important place to be do that, doing that kind of work. And there was, um, you know, one question I had for you was, uh, you know, when you applied for this position, was the insane diversity of salamanders in the Appalachians, you know, was that one of the motivating factors, having such an interesting group so close? That is absolutely one of the motivation, motivating factors. What I have found through, you know, if we were to say, you know, what's your favorite species, I'd be like, within what genus? You know, mm -hmm. I have a favorite in every possible category that I can split it down to. But what I learned when I was working in Madagascar and, and you know, in the eastern U.S. is that 
one of the things that makes me the most happy is not having to limit myself to one species. I like to ask about huge groups so that I have an excuse to look into and understand all of them and then ask kinds of questions that allow us to generalize across all of them and understand something really key about their evolutionary history, about the um, you know their future under climate change. And so that has led me to be kind of interested in places that have really high diversity in the tropics, but also in places, you know, like uh, Southwest Virginia, where we have all of these amazing species of salamanders. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to this earlier, but um, salamanders are often um, found in these sort of micro-endemics, I think is the term, where you have uh, these very small populations that need a very specific range. You know, the peaks of otter uh, salamander, the big level salamander, some of the relatively nearby examples. You know, do you think there are more salamanders not far from us to be discovered and uh, that, that maybe, by gum, you're the one to do it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely think that there, there are more species. Mm -hmm. I think that there's also an interesting opportunity to discover things that are hybridizing, meaning that two populations are in contact or were historically in contact and that there's this uh, you know, mixed mixed populations in the middle. And so that's something that's also really interesting to me because sometimes it allows us as evolutionary biologists to have a snapshot of the process of speciation. So one species forming into two. So that's another part of my research that I'm really, really interested in. Not just finding new species, but understanding how we got new species in the first place. You know, what do you see as your research areas uh, now that you're our, our herpetologist? Um, you know, I've definitely given a lot of thought to this because mm -hmm. I had quite a bit of time before mm -hmm. uh, before arriving here to, to think about the things about my research program that I can come back to now that I have, have this opportunity. And I do think I'm really interested in these salamanders mm -hmm. in the mountains. Uh, I'm interested in community biology, meaning not just this one individual or this one population, but the way that tons of populations are interacting within a given local or regional space. And I think that the cool thing about this is that even if we don't really understand what this, these interactions are, understanding whole community health um, and whole community diversity allows us to really say, if we project us into the future under climate change, under habitat loss, maybe even under um, disease prevalence, you know, will we lose a lot in this one area and how will that cascade into uh, more species than I'm even looking at? And so that's a, an opportunity that I'm really gonna dive into. Also super interested in kind of traversing this cool area where we have a lot of transition from Northern species into Southern species and moving upwards uh, and working with some of my collaborators who are up North um, all the way up into Canada to get this big picture of not just the species that are here, but you know where we are on the edge ranges and how that changes into the core of the species range. And this is going to be, I think, really important also for capturing their history and seeing how their history kind of tells us about the, you know, the positive or negative aspects of their future. I'm also really excited to catch snakes here again because where I was located last time I was out, uh, out east, I was a bit north of here. So some of the species we get, we get here were my like growing up backyard species, but there's quite a few that I couldn't get that I'm really excited to see down here. You know, there's some some other species of water snakes, some other species of copperheads uh, that I'm going to be able to, to check out up close, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. We had quite a few rattlesnakes. The, the population of prairie rattlesnakes where I was in Lethbridge was very, very high, but that was the only rattlesnake or the only venomous snake in the area, so 
I am really excited to just go flip some logs and find some cool snakes. Nice. Well, if you like water snakes, uh, <laughs> Natural Bridge State Park okay. is a great place to hit up. Um, they have, uh, a couple of years ago, Dr. Cal Ivanov and I did a video for our, our virtual reptile festival at the start of the pandemic about uh, queen snakes and northern water snakes. Mm. And if you go to our Facebook page, you can watch a video of me getting bitten by a northern water snake <laughs> and bleeding all over everything. So yeah. It was a fun day. That yeah. sounds like some pretty classic uh, water snake behavior. Yeah. It's one of the things I love about them. They've got a lot of spice. They do. They, they didn't abide me. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you've gotten a chance now to uh, look at the museum's herpetology collections. You know, how does uh, our herpetology collection kind of fit in with your research interests? Yeah, I'm, I've definitely spent, even though I've only been here four days, I've already mm -hmm. visited the collection about four times. Uh, <laughs> I really am passionate about museum collections and all they have to offer for research. One thing I'm really excited to do is to build up our tissue collection, which means that I want to go and get little pieces of tissue. This can be everything from, you know, from a snake that's gotten hit by a car on the side of the road to a snake shed that's been left behind by a snake uh, that I find in the forest where I can get pieces of DNA out of this tissue. And that allows me to ask a lot of interesting questions. And I wanna pair these with data that I gather from the specimens in the collection. So their morphology, things like limb length, um, uh, body patterns, and taking these two pieces of information together, DNA, which allows me to look at things like the population history, uh, the health of the population, um, evolutionarily, when did it get here, and also things about the morphology. So if two species are forming um, from one, how does these external, how do these external characteristics or body shape or body size pair along with this split? Um, and then what does that mean ecologically? Why do we see these different types of patterns? Um, is it advantageous, is it not? So being able to have a collection at hand that I can actually look at organisms and, and answer those questions without having to go and find a hundred of them in one day is incredibly <laughs> exciting to me. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to. So uh, I take it you'll be uh, uh, using the molecular lab alongside Dr. Jackson Means, who's, who's currently kind of been, uh, yeah, I won't say bogarting it, but he's spent most <laughs> of his time in there. Yeah, I'm really excited to get started in the molecular lab. Um, I think there's a lot of potential here to do some barcoding which is something where we just get a tiny piece of DNA and we can amplify this and um, use this, you know, compare it against this huge entire database of, of many living organisms and understand what something is without having to ever really see it. So for example, if you said, I found this snake shed on my property, it's been outside for a month, I can't see the pattern anymore and I'm not able to tell from the scales what it was. I could take a piece of this snake shed I could get a single molecular marker uh, sequence and I could blast it against this huge database and I could tell you with pretty much nearly 100% certainty that it was a queen snake or it was, um, you know, a rattlesnake. So I think that that is really fun because it's one of the ways that we identify these cryptic species. These types of studies out of nowhere, we suddenly say, hey, that thing looks really different. It's not showing up on my database as being very closely, closely linked to anything else. Um, this is neither here nor there, but uh, as a herpetologist, is it 
kind of lame to be starting uh, a herpetology job right as the weather is turning cold. <laughs> I put a lot of thought into this, and I'll be honest, I really did want to get out here before everything got really chilly, but I also had some things to finish up in Lethbridge. So one nice thing is that I did get to see the rattlesnakes all migrate back to their hibernaculum. Oh, wow. This happens right in September because their winter hits a bit earlier. And so I got to say goodbye to like you know my piles of rattlesnakes and all my special spots because they were all <laughs> moving back. And uh, so I was happy to see that, but I'm sad to miss that here. Um, and believe it or not, you know, if it rains at this temperature, you can still really, this is sort of prime salamandering weather because it's not getting so hot that they're super hiding under the ground. And if you get a really good rain on a not that cold night, you can still find a ton of salamanders in the right spots. I know because I've been seeing everyone's photos that went out last weekend when it rained uh, right in Shenandoah. And so, you know, it's not the worst time, but it's not a great time for snakes. Uh. <laughs> yeah, the, the salamanders are, it, it was surprising when I first learned that because I, I know um, I went out actually with Dr. Joe Kuiper some years ago um, to see where salamanders were starting to spawn, and it was in maybe late February. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they seem a lot more tolerant, certainly. They really are, and there's a number of species of frogs, too. If you've ever seen a wood frog, uh, these have some freeze tolerance you know, capabilities that allow them to be very, very northern. You know, They can be in Alaska, which is not a place we really think as being hospitable for an amphibian or a cold-blooded organism. But um, some of these animals have extreme capabilities to withstand cold temperatures, including salamanders. Uh, You will often see them doing their spring migrations over the snow. It really, we just need enough water for them to have these vernal or temporary pools that they breed in. And that's the biggest requirement. So although it's not always fun to be out in the rain at night when it's very, very cold, it is a kind of a great time if you're a salamander or someone looking for salamanders. Uh, do you have uh, do you plan on studying any of the turtles that we have in the area? I know we don't have in Southwest Virginia we don't have a huge diversity of turtle species, although Virginia itself does. But is that an area of interest for you? Um, definitely. You know, I love turtles. I did a lot of work actually back in New York where we were pit tagging painted turtles in their native habitat and going back each year and. Uh, and checking for the same turtles and taking measurements to kind of get this sense of how well the populations are faring over time. And this is something I actually did with um, students ages about 9 to 14. It's something I would love to be doing here is doing some mark recapture studies to get an estimate of population health for, for some of the species in the area. I think it's turtles are fantastic for this. They're, and also it's a great excuse to get to go and see a bunch of turtles in, in different ponds. So I would, I would love to do this kind of work here as well. Yeah, I'm um, particularly interested in the bog turtles. Uh, those, those guys, I got to see some at the Norfolk Aquarium. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to breed them in captivity. Mm. Very, very neat species that's uh, unfortunately on the decline here. Yeah, you know, this is unfortunately the case for, for many turtles. And that's why the work that we can do with them is incredibly important from a conservation perspective. Just understanding where they go, what they're doing, and how they're going to be impacted is, is huge. And I'm excited to link up with a number of people who are doing this important work with turtles in the region. You know, I love turtles. <laughs> who couldn't? Who couldn't? <laughs> 
Well, Ariana, I know that um, you know, you're you're quite busy preparing for your your fifth full day here. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to introduce yourself, and uh, look forward to having you back on the podcast very soon. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks so much, Ben. And thank you for listening. Thanks also to our sponsor, Carter Bank and Trust, and to my good friend Doug Cheatwood for the use of his song, Digging Up Dinosaurs and Putting Them Together Again. We'll see you next time. Digging up the dinosaurs and-